Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Reformation Day was yesterday, a day that commemorates Martin Luther nailing his 95 questions to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. Today, our host, Pastor Larry Spargimino, looks at the lasting impact of Martin Luther and how Luther's example from over 500 years ago can encourage us with the challenges that we're facing today. The issues Luther faced in the 16th century in Germany are the issues we still face today. In the words of Solomon, there's nothing new under the sun. That's from Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9. The big issue in Luther's day was the authority of the Bible and the sole sufficiency of Scripture in matters of faith and practice. The Roman Catholic Church has three sources of authority. First, the Bible. Secondly, church tradition. And thirdly, the magisterium of the church, meaning the combined wisdom of the Pope and the bishops giving the approved interpretation of Scripture. When you put the Bible on par with two other sources of authority, the Bible is no longer the only source of authority. The testimony of Scripture is thereby weakened and diluted. Furthermore, other teachings, teachings from outside the Bible, are brought into the lives of the faithful. Is it right to impose human traditions on people and to claim those traditions are from God? I believe that's very wrong. Two doctrines that are important to Roman Catholics actually became official only recently as far as church history is concerned. The Immaculate Conception of Mary, the belief that she was conceived without original sin, was formulated and approved in 1854. Another item of dogma that is recent, the bodily assumption of Mary into heaven, became official dogma in the Catholic Church in 1950. Luther courageously said that there is only one infallible source of divine authority, and that is sacred scripture. We all need to be as courageous as Luther. There is only one, not two, and not three, only one infallible source of divine authority, the Holy Bible. Few today realize the power of the popes in Luther's day. They had the power of the sword and the power of death. We often say, you can fight City Hall. Luther did, and by the grace of God, he and the cause for God's truth prevailed. The Crusades greatly aided in the growing influence of the papacy. The Crusades began as an effort to capture Jerusalem from the Muslims. For centuries, the Catholic Church had placed great emphasis upon pilgrimage to Jerusalem as a means of securing forgiveness for sins committed after baptism. The Muslims captured Jerusalem in the 7th century, but allowed pilgrims to visit the city for religious purposes. But in the 11th century, the land of Israel was conquered by the Seljuk Turks, who were totally unsympathetic to Christian pilgrimages. Soon the idea began to take root that a military invasion and capturing of the Holy Land was necessary. In addition, the Turks were threatening to capture Constantinople. In 1095, Pope Urban II called secular rulers to devote themselves to a divine crusade, promising forgiveness of sin to those who were killed in the invasion of the Holy Land to free it from the Turks. It became obvious that the Pope now had power to call upon secular rulers to march against enemies of the church, including religious dissenters in Europe and secular princes who refused to be obedient to the Pope. The Pope had the power of the keys to open the gates of heaven and to admit into heaven all who supported the aims of the papacy. 
Submit to the Pope, and a place in heaven is guaranteed for you. A refusal to submit to the Pope could cut you off from eternal life. The Pope became the most powerful person on earth. People believe their eternal destiny was in the Pope's hands. A new and powerful tool for papal coercion had been formed. Extreme reverence for sacred objects or relics, alleged pieces of the cross upon which Christ died, and devotion to physical remains of a favored person, a piece of bone or tooth of a saint, led to the struggle to recapture the greatest of all relics, the holy city of Jerusalem. However, when Jerusalem was recaptured by the Muslims, the market value of relics went out of sight. Cutting off the source of a reliable supply of relics brought inflation and price gouging. Fraud and misrepresentation were common in the trafficking of religious relics. We cannot fully understand the bodily danger that Luther faced and his amazing commitment to the gospel of Christ unless we understand some of these antecedent conditions of papal and ecclesiastical abuse. He was standing on the authority of Scripture against those who could damn him to hell. Luther's rediscovery of sola scriptura, the Bible alone, and sola fide, faith alone, apart from any church approval, brought a time of celebration, victory, and praise from those who had been cruelly oppressed by the Roman church for centuries. For a former Roman Catholic, such as myself, justifying faith in Jesus Christ alone is a liberating experience, liberation from sin and death, and also liberation from ecclesiastical tyranny. Pope Gregory VII, and he was Pope from 1073 to 1085, who was also known as Hildebrand, was one of several successive popes who provided strong leadership for the advancement of Catholicism. The goal was the development and implementation of three important principles. First, to eliminate internal opposition to papal rule within the Roman Church. Second, to free the papacy from external influence in the appointment of bishops and the election of popes. And third, to secure the cooperation of secular rulers in attaining the goals of the papacy. The Catholic concept that there is no salvation outside of the Roman Church certainly aided the growing influence and power of the papacy. The sacraments are believed to be conveyors of God's grace, but no one could partake of the sacraments unless they were in good fellowship with Rome. Thus, the Pope actually controlled who could be accepted into heaven. Those out of fellowship with Rome were allegedly in big trouble with God. Thus, this power was the basis of papal coercion. When anyone refused to submit to papal authority, the Pope had three weapons at his disposal. The first was the Edict of Excommunication. A document was prepared and published for public consumption. Excommunication officially cut the offending party off from the church, the sacraments, and salvation itself. A total excommunication was a fearful thing. It was believed to have eternal consequences. If the edict of excommunication was against a ruler, the church had the power to relieve all the citizens of their duty to the ruler. The king, or ruling authority, no longer could claim the obedience of his or her subjects. This would remove from the ruler all rights of obedience and loyalty by his subjects. The second weapon at the disposal of the papacy was the interdict, which was the edict of excommunication applied to a village, town, or even a city or kingdom. 
An interdict closed all the churches in a given area and closed the door to the sacraments and hence to heaven itself. The third weapon employed by the papacy was the ban. This allowed civil rulers to categorize the one out of fellowship with the Catholic Church to be punished as a criminal and an outlaw. Under the ban, a person who had committed a church offense was now subject to punishment by the secular powers. The legal machinery of a secular ruler could now be applied to someone guilty of an ecclesiastical offense. In other words, the civil government could now treat a heretic as an enemy and lawbreaker in need of punishment. For a secular ruler to align his purposes and rule with the Pope was highly advantageous. It was also advantageous for the Pope to solidify relations with secular rulers whose armies could be used to further papal goals. The Roman Church grew in influence and authority. It also grew in wealth and had a number of ways of increasing revenue for the Church. One of the ways was the sale of indulgences. Many Catholics were taught that they could make satisfaction for sin by making a pilgrimage to a Catholic shrine or to Jerusalem or through some other meritorious work demonstrating their sincerity and piety. After the 11th century, however, instead of making a pilgrimage, it was possible to purchase an indulgence in order to earn satisfaction for certain temporal sins. It was this practice in particular that motivated Luther to nail his 95 theses, that is, 95 points of debate, to the cathedral door in Wittenberg, Germany. In the Roman Catholic system, the church is central. For Roman Catholics, the church means much more than what the word church means in the New Testament. The church allegedly has been endowed by God with all wisdom, truth, and understanding, and its courts, synods, and councils are led by God into all truth. The, quote, church, in the Roman Catholic view, is still receiving normative revelation from God. Hence, the, quote, church can speak infallibly on a number of things that are not even mentioned in the Bible, like the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption of Mary. Hence, when an evangelical speaks to a Roman Catholic and says that teaching about Mary is not in the Bible, that's not a serious objection for the Catholic. Why? because the Bible is not the final repository of truth, rather the, quote, church is. Luther was, indeed, a very courageous man. We see his courage in the 1527 plague outbreak that came to parts of Germany. Luther was a key figure in the Reformation and was told by Reformation leaders to flee the city. He was too important to the cause. Luther refused. He and his pregnant wife, Katerina von Bora, a former Catholic nun who had learned some nursing skills in the cloister, stayed behind and opened a wing of their home as a clinic. Though Luther was a learned scholar, he was also a compassionate pastor who exposed himself to plague-ridden patients and gave them counsel from the Word of God. Luther knew that there were some who were weak in faith. He said it was permissible to leave an infected area But before doing so, they must make sure that the people under their care had someone to care for their needs. Luther wrote a short treatise explaining his motivations for staying and his methods of ministry. He quotes 1 Timothy 5.8, which says that anyone who does not provide for his own family denies the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Martin Luther is still important for us today. 
because he reminds us by his unbelievable hostility against Jews and hate-filled words that the best of men are but men at best. Early in his ministry, Luther argued that the Jews had not embraced Christianity because the only Christianity they knew was the Roman Catholic brand of Christianity. Luther believed, however, that if the gospel of Christ were presented to them gently, that they would convert from Judaism to Christianity. Luther tenderly expressed great concern for the poor conditions in which Jews were forced to live. He insisted that anyone who denied that Jesus was born a Jew was committing heresy. In 1519, Luther wrote, Absurd theologians defend hatred for the Jews. What Jew would consent to enter our ranks when he sees the cruelty and enmity we bring on them? That in our behavior towards them, we less resemble Christians than beasts, close quotes. Luther, however, slowly changed his mind about Jews. Even when he tried to win them to Christ with a more evangelical approach, they rejected all Luther had to say. In 1543, Luther published a 65,000-word treatise titled On the Jews and Their Lives. Luther argued that Jewish schools and synagogues should be burned, Jewish prayer books destroyed, rabbis forbidden to preach, Jewish property and money confiscated. I will spare the listener further details. Some of it is unbelievably coarse and vile. During World War II, copies of Luther's treatise were held up by the Nazis at their rallies. The prevailing scholarly consensus today is that Hitler's treatise, unfortunately, greatly fueled the fires of anti-Semitism and the Holocaust. So, one of the negative things we learn from Luther is this, call no man master. We can also add, the best of men are but men at best. We need to carefully and diligently search our hearts and ask the Lord to guard our hearts and minds, lest we say and write things that will do great harm. May God help us all. No wonder James 3 verse 1 tells us that those who teach and lead shall be judged more strictly than those who don't. Nevertheless, despite Luther's flaws, God used him to rediscover a very important and precious truth justification by faith alone, or to use the Latin sola fide. Romans 4, verses 3, 4, and 5 lay out the biblical teaching. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Notice the nature and description of the graciousness of God. God is described as him that justifieth the ungodly. There is not the slightest hint here that we have to first mend our ways and provide works as proof of our sincerity. God is the one who justifies, notice, the ungodly. The Apostle Paul uses Abraham's faith to illustrate the great theme of justification by faith. Luther also picked up on this. Romans 4, verse 3 says, For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. In Genesis 15, verse 6, God made a promise to Abraham, and Abraham believed that God would bring it to pass. God told Abraham to look up at the stars and consider their great number. That for Abraham was a picture of the sum of God's promise. 
That's a picture of the number of descendants Abraham would have, a number so large that it would be a great multitude, a multitude without number. Abraham and his wife Sarah were both beyond the childbearing years. There was no possibility, other than by a divine intervention, that they would have children. But Abraham believed God's promise and was justified in God's sight. The content of Abraham's faith was different than the content of the faith of believing sinners today. Abraham's faith focused on a promise that he and Sarah would have a great number of children. For us, the promise is focused on Jesus accepting us, not on the promise of having a great number of children. Though the content of our faith is different than Abraham's faith, the means of obtaining what God had promised is the same through faith and faith alone. I always try to have an ironic spirit and not try to promote division among professing Christians. I appreciate Roman Catholics for their pro-life stand, belief in the traditional family, and some other important societal issues. However, VeritasBible.com has material under the heading, Faith Alone? No. Material to which I must strenuously object. They have misunderstood biblical teaching. The Bible does not deny in any way whatsoever the importance of good works in the Christian life. We simply deny, along with the Bible, that good works are necessary for salvation. Lost people, the unsaved, are not in any way able to produce any good works that are meritorious and that count with God. Salvation is a gift, not a payment for doing good works. God is not in our debt. We are debtors, not God. Our best works are as filthy rags, according to Isaiah 64, 6. In God's sight, even our repentance needs to be repented of. The biblical principle is quite clear. We are saved by faith alone, but faith that is alone is not saving faith. Even Luther thought that James contradicted Paul when James wrote, You see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers that had sent them out another way. That's from James 2, 24 and 25. We are justified in the sight of men by our good works, but we are justified in the sight of God by our faith alone. Man looks on the outward appearance, so in order to demonstrate our faith in the sight of men, we have to have some proof of a changed life. That proof is good works. Luther, consistent with Scripture, saw grace, not law, as the overriding principle in God's dealing with mankind. There never was a time when man could ever earn anything from God on the basis of human performance or merit. Human depravity is so profound, reaching to the very heart of man, that man has nothing meritorious to offer God, nor is anything that man does, even his most noble works, free from the taint of sin. If anyone is to be saved, it must be by the grace of God, receiving Christ and believing the gospel. In Galatians 3, verse 17 and following, the apostle writes, And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. The apostle is alluding to God's gracious dealings with Abraham. Abraham was accepted by grace, 
As a matter of fact, says the Apostle Paul in the above scripture, God's covenant of grace with Abraham preceded the giving of the Mosaic law, and that the giving of the law did in no way cancel God's covenant of grace. This is brought out in Galatians 3.17. And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul. The next verse, verse 18, reinforces these words. For if the inheritance be of the law, meaning law-keeping, it is no more a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. This was all part of Luther's monergism. Synergism is the belief that man cooperates with God in the salvation process. Monergism is the belief that man is dead in trespasses and sins to the extent that man does not cooperate with God. What this means for the monergist, and Luther was a monergist, is that there is no such thing as human free will. Man's will has been irreparably damned and damaged by the fall. Salvation must be all of God from start to finish. Luther articulated this view in his treatise, The Bondage of the Will. Luther denies that an individual's free choice determines one's salvation. Rather, it is God's pretemporal choice of the individual that determines one's salvation. The Bondage of the Will was published in 1525. Luther said it was his most important theological treatise. He called it, quote, the centerpiece of the Reformation, close quotes. Luther wrote this treatise as his answer to the centrally important Renaissance thinker Erasmus. Luther praised Erasmus for his sharp criticism of the Catholic Church, but was critical of Erasmus's synergism. Luther wrote, I fear that dear Erasmus does not go far enough in embracing the truth. Erasmus thought that Luther was wrong and challenged him on his teaching on the will. Erasmus taught that the human will is free and that the Bible leaves a lot of wiggle room when it comes to the relationship between divine sovereignty and human freedom. Luther challenged that and made the case that the will is bound. He said we are part of Adam's sinful lump, an expression Luther got from Augustine, one of the early theologians of the church, who lived 10 centuries before Luther. Get your own copy of today's teaching on Martin Luther by Pastor Larry by calling 1-800-652-1144. Pastor Larry comes back to the microphone now to answer some more of your Bible questions. Are the sealed judgments divine wrath? The sealed judgments begin in Revelation 6.1. At the end of the chapter, we read that everyone on earth hid themselves with fear and terror. Revelation 6, 16 and 17 reads this way, And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Does this mean that the wrath of God is manifested in the sealed judgments, or is there some other explanation for these judgments? That's a crucial question in the ongoing discussion between those who hold to a pre-trib rapture, as we do at Southwest Radio Ministries, and those who hold to a pre-wrath rapture. The pre-trib view is that the sealed judgments come upon the earth as a result of God's wrath, and that since the church has not been appointed to wrath, the rapture occurs before the sealed judgments. The pre-wrath view also holds that the church is removed before the wrath of God is poured forth on the earth. 
It claims that the wrath of God is manifested beginning with the opening of the seventh seal described in Revelation 8.1. Hence, in the pre-wrath view, the first six seals are not judgments resulting from the wrath of God. The words is come in Revelation 6.17 help to decide the answer to this issue. The phrase in question is, for the great day of his wrath is come. The proponents of the pre-wrath view understand is come in a future sense. That is, God's wrath is come in the opening of the seventh seal. Is come is a translation of the Greek verb elthen, which is in the aorist tense. The verb in this tense is used five times in the book of Revelation, and in every case it describes an event that occurs prior to the time of the expression. The verb in the aorist form is not used in the futuristic sense in the book of Revelation. The sealed judgments do not come from the wrath of man or the wrath of Satan. What does the Bible mean when it says that the wrath of God is come? This is a statement of these terrified people on earth at the breaking of the sixth seal. They are terrified not because of what they will experience, but because of what they have already experienced. Hence, is come references an earlier arrival of divine wrath. The wrath of God is manifested in all the sealed judgments, not just in the seventh one. In a recent Ask the Clergy column of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, a question was asked about whether or not there is a contradiction between John 3.16 and 1 John 2.15. The former says that God so loved the world, but the latter says that Christians are to love not the world. Is there a contradiction? Well, a basic principle of interpreting Scripture is to understand the meaning of words in their various contexts. This is especially important when the word can have multiple meanings. Sometimes the same word can have different meanings in the same verse. An example of this is Matthew 8:22, where Jesus is answering the man who said he had some personal business to attend before following Christ, and Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. Since dead people can't bury anyone, the first reference to dead must be those who are spiritually dead burying their physically dead. There are many examples of this. In the New Testament Greek, the word for church is ekklesia. Many of the New Testament epistles are addressed to the church, the ekklesia, in this or that city. Yet in Acts 19, verse 39, the town council is called an ekklesia. In this case, the word does not mean a local church, but rather a lawful assembly, as it is translated in the King James Bible. So, the word world is a translation of the Greek word cosmos. In the New Testament, the word cosmos or world can have several different meanings, all being described with the same word. For example, world can mean the planet Earth and God's creation. This is the meaning of the word world in John 1, verse 10, where it says that Jesus was in the world and the world was made by him. So when 1 John 2.15 says, love not the world, it doesn't mean that we are not to love the planet Earth. Sometimes the word world means the civilized world of the first century, as in Romans 1.8, where Paul says that the gospel was being proclaimed throughout the whole world. When John 3.16 says that God loved the world, it is speaking of the world of lost humanity, people everywhere in rebellion against God. But in 1 John 2.15, when we are told to love not the world, it means that we are not to love the world's system and scheme of values. 
Get more answers to your Bible questions in Larry Spargimino's book, Digging Deeper. We also have Pastor Larry's new book, Needless Death, COVID, Corruption, Control. Get both of these books and the DVD, 1517, The Flame Rekindled, for a gift of $45 or more when you call 1-800-652-1144. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com. Thank you.